Welcome to Trendsetters, the latest season of the podcast Long Story Short. I'm Peter Van Doywert, and this series is all about demystifying the world of quantitative trend-following strategies, how they work, why they work, and where they might fit in your portfolio. So joining us today is Otto von Hemmert. He is Director of Core Strategies at MAN AHL and co-author of a couple of award-winning papers, The Best Strategies for the Worst Crises and The Best Strategies for Inflationary Times. Otto, it's great to have you. Thank you. We spoke with Russell in our first episode a lot about kind of an introduction to trend, you know, kind of for newbies. And I guess I'd like to do a little bit of a deeper dive on the mechanics of trends. So maybe let's just start off getting an understanding of how trend has worked over time. Sure. Um, Trends often arise when there's a big change in the macro environment. Uh, It may start in one corner of financial markets, but then has ripple effects to other corners of the financial markets. And it just takes markets time to digest that information. There's an initial underreaction uh, and uh, then trending type behavior in order for full reflection of the news. Um, an example is the global financial crisis started around 2007 uh, with uh, some badly underwritten subprime mortgage loans, uh, house prices under pressure, but all in all, initially the problems were kind of underestimated. It was supposed to be contained to the to the housing markets. Even uh, uh, Ben Bernanke spoke about it in that way. But really, in the end, there was a full blown uh, crisis. All kind of markets were impacted, and uh, good trending in uh, markets uh, arose. And we we can benefit from that using using trend type models. So I guess going back to the global financial crisis, people didn't see it coming. Nobody predicted it. So how does trend go about? I don't want to say what predicting it, but how does it capture momentum and how does it get positioned into these sort of events? In, uh, in macro markets, it's usually determined in a, in, a, in a time series fashion. You look at the price history of the security you're trading in isolation, not versus uh, the price history of other securities. This is in contrast to single name stock momentum, which is more typically a cross-sectional concept. Um, so for macro markets like oil or an equity index or a government bond future, uh, you look at the price history of that security in a time series fashion. You can look at uh, the, the, the return over a certain window, one to three months. You can look at uh, the uh, moving, moving average crossover, the average price recently versus the average price over a longer window. And if that crosses, it indicates that prices are going in a particular direction. Or you can even look at more esoteric formulations like a breakout model where the price goes outside of a certain historical range of the prices. If it breaks out from above, it's a positive trend. Breaks out from below, it's a negative trend. So there are many different formulations that you can consider, um, but in macro markets, mostly in a, in a, in a time series fashion is, is how they're uh, defined. And that makes me curious because, you know, on TV news shows, you'll hear kind of moving averages talked about a lot. Is it as simple as just picking a few moving averages or are they really crowded? Like, is everyone doing this? I mean, I hear 200 day every day when I wake up and it's below or above that. You know, how, how should I think about that? Is it something you guys do a lot more work around? The starting point can be straightforward in that it uses price data and a relatively simple formula applied to the price data, but there are several portfolio construction steps subsequently. How do you combine trading trends on many different markets? 
how do you, you size the position after you've established you want to be long or short based on the trendiness of a security? How do you combine all the different formulations? Uh, and indeed, you can come up with slightly more complicated formulations that make use of, for example, intraday sampled price data and not just daily price data. So while the starting point is intuitive and to a degree something you can uh, you can implement fairly easily yourself with an Excel sheet or so. Uh, there, there's a lot more that, uh, that that comes to it when you actually want to implement something like this. And without revealing special sauce, are there ones that the trend industry likes more than others or the ones that are more profitable or more unique? I would say things like breakout signals are a bit less common uh, and, uh, and therefore perhaps more additive compared to what, what others uh, are doing. So um indeed the the most simple uh, implementation is simply one month trend or 12 month trend and uh, and once you go for the different formulations like breakouts it's it's a bit more different and you kind of alluded to lag um and how it affects returns you should investors look at returns over a shorter time say the past month or is that not really enough time to determine a trend so we we extensively researched this and, and written about this as well in some of those papers you, you, you mentioned. Um, predictability of past returns with a positive sign is there for the last 12 months. Uh, this is in line with the academic literature on, uh, on single name stocks where there's often 12 month momentum uh, that's, that's being considered. Um, interestingly, the 13th month ago is not predictive with a positive sign. If anything, it's predictive with a negative sign. So it's really about exactly the last 12 months uh, of returns that you would consider in a, in a trend formulation. Um, if you look at within those previous 12 months, how the predictability varies, it's more recent returns that are quite relevant. And you can imagine that an underreaction to news is particularly well man, uh, measured by, by more recent month returns, but also returns almost a year ago are relevant. But I think of those more as a uh, seasonal pattern that you start picking up on. Um, and then returns that are around half a year ago are a little bit less predictive because they're neither the short-term underreaction to news um, nor, uh, nor a more seasonal pattern. They're kind of in between and therefore less predictive. Oftentimes people focus more on the more recent months returns, not necessarily because those perform the best, but uh, they do lead to strategies that are a bit more defensive in nature that are uh, providing more, uh, more crisis alpha, I, uh, I suppose. It, it's, it's interesting you say that because I think a lot of us, when we think about trend, we just think of everyone's piling in, moving an asset kind of in, in a fast way. But what you're describing is, sort of a couple different markets in a way where there is this herd mentality and then there's this longer dated piece. Is the longer dated piece something academic maybe? Or you know, how, how should I think about the longer dated versus the shorter dated piece exactly? Like who's driving it in a sense? I do think there's very different um, driving forces behind uh, the predictability of returns more recently and the predictability of returns almost a year ago. Um, um, the, the predictability of returns almost a year ago. Again, I think it's more seasonal related. A lot of things we do are related to the annual calendar. Uh, you can think of tax effects. You can you, uh, think of 52-week uh, 
um, reporting uh, cycles. Um, a lot of things follow an annual cycle and therefore have price pressure effects that follow that same annual cycle. And that shows up ultimately in a trend formulation if you if you uh, go back as far as a full year in uh, historical return data. So then every now and then we see certain asset classes have big moves. You know, equities might have a sharp up move as, you know, you know, maybe people are chasing returns. Who knows what the, the cause might be? Do trend strategies just let them run or, or do you take profits? Do you intervene manually? What do you do? So indeed, sometimes you're in a very big trend, a very big and long lasting move in a particular asset. Uh, obviously, trend signals pick up on that and you position yourself in line with that big move. But there are a couple of ways in which you do take some profits uh, along the way. First of all, when there's a very extended long move in a asset, that also often means that volatility is going up for that asset. And often a trend model will divide by volatility in order to, to uh, allocate in risk terms. So you, you invest a smaller notional amount when a market becomes more and more volatile. And in this case, that can mean taking profits on, uh, on the market. Um, Another feature of trend models is that you can explicitly codify that when a trend model is a trend is becoming very strong and very long lasting, you may reduce your your positions a bit. You may uh, program in that the signal becomes uh, a bit less strong because uh, because you you're you're more at risk of a reversal of uh, of the trend at that stage. And so, is it, is the reversal issue just your risk of because it feels like a higher risk of loss, you know, if the market's up 30%, or is there something more to that? I would say it's mainly a, um, a pattern that you can empirically establish that when, when, when trends, uh, in a sense, are, have been too strong, you empirically see a bit of a give up, uh, and that's somewhat predictable, and you can modulate your trend systems to, to kind of pick up on that. Uh, what the actual force behind that is it could well be that uh, there's there's been a bit of a herd mentality and that at, at the moment that stops, there's a bit of a give up uh, if uh, of say a price uh, increase. Yeah, I, I guess it sounds to me a little bit like you're assuming some mean reversion in a trend and that seems to be paradoxical. So what is less common is to actually bet on mean reversion. What is more common is to bet less on trend continuation, still betting on trend continuation, but not in as big a size as you do during a more moderate uh, trending environment. So I'll, I'll pick up on the vol scaling pit bit as well. I guess because it's somewhat interesting this year, different trend managers have different approaches. I guess, could you talk a little bit about what vol scaling means to say just a single asset? You kind of touched on it already. And you know what the two sides of the argument might be. Yeah, so two degree vol scaling is a necessity when you trade macro markets because some macro markets are very volatile. Think of, for example, natural gas can easily move 10% in just one day. And other markets are not so volatile. An interest rate uh, future, very short duration, uh, fixed income security doesn't move that much on a day-to-day -day basis. So just because you have so many different securities, you, you have to kind of 
scale by volatility to bring them uh, uh, on the same basis and make them comparable. But vol scaling then also typically is used over time. If a security at this moment is not so volatile, you take bigger positions. And if that same security is very volatile a month later, you take smaller positions. Uh, in other words, you, you almost allocate a fixed number of risk units to the security rather than a fixed dollar investment amount. Um, it's, it's something that uh, helps with the risk management of, of the overall strategy and of that particular security in particular. And it's something that also over time uh, allows you to have a more balanced return stream coming out of uh, the, the trend model that you're trading. So it's basically an issue of being greedy versus a more balanced return stream, if I were to kind of bottom line it. In other words, letting an asset run when it becomes parabolically you know, straight up and, and highly volatile hurts your ability to manage a complex you know, bundle of assets. Is that about right? It's, yeah, so it's, it's about risk managing the exposure to that asset um, and, and uh, to the previous point we discussed, there's an element of profit taking sometimes as well. For example, you're in a big positive trend of a, uh, of a particular security. Uh, the, the security then also starts becoming very volatile and you reduce the, the notional uh, allocation you give to that security at that stage and therefore taking some profits on that, that trend. Changing gears just a little. Oftentimes, you know, investment bank research, especially derivative strategists, put out pieces talking about systematic strategies and what they might be doing, trying to guess if they're buying, selling, and they imply that there's some crowding going on. Do you think there's crowding in, in some of the bigger markets, say equities and bonds? You know, do you think they're capturing this stuff correctly? What are your thoughts? First of all, I do think you always need to be very careful about crowding. That's not just for trend type models, that's for, for, for any model. When it comes to trend following big macro markets, uh, I, I, I don't think the, the, the size of the trend trades are big enough to easily move an S&P 500 index or a Brent uh, oil uh, contract. Um, in addition to that, trend followers really can be quite different in the timing of their trades, depending on whether the trade slow or fast or crossing of moving average versus breakouts. Um, but you do have to be careful in sizing your trades in perhaps somewhat smaller markets you may be trading. One other thing to note in this regard is that there's many other participants in the market as well, not just trend followers. And in fact, a very natural way to trade for people is with, a, with more of a value-oriented approach. And that often is the other side of the trade. They are often on the other side because a security that goes down in price, a trend follower would be short, it's on a downward trend, but it will more and more look appealing from a value, valuation uh, point of view often, and therefore value-oriented investors may be on the other side countering the any imbalance flow you may be getting from from trend following so moving on to this year and inflationary times yeah you put out a paper last year that seemed reasonably well timed thank you um, and it definitely has turned out about as you expected so maybe why don't we talk a bit about the paper a bit about the basis that you made predictions that trend would do well for this year because you're not into timing anything in terms of strategies personally, right? You don't say when to buy value or when to buy growth. And so maybe let's talk about the research over the last hundred years and how it applied to this year. Um, yeah, what, what 
what we often see is that uh, a big macroeconomic shock is helpful for, for, for trend-type strategies. A fast, sudden rise in inflation definitely uh, uh, fits that bill. Uh, and we've seen exactly that. We've gone from a very moderate, not so volatile inflation level to one that's volatile and, and, much, and, and rising quite fast. We've, we've looked at exactly those scenarios over the last almost 100 years and across three continents, the US, uh, the UK and Japan. And indeed, exactly during those rising inflationary time periods, trend following strategies have tended to do particularly well. It takes markets time to fully digest the, the new inflationary environment, um, just like it takes central bankers time uh, to, to uh, uh, to recognize the new environment. Uh, for example, uh, Jerome Powell has talked about transitory inflation for a long time period, but he had to drop that at some point because it's not transitory anymore. It's a real issue at this stage. And when when inflation gets out of control, uh, as, as it uh, has over the, over the past year or so, you do see um, consistent winners and losers in terms of securities. And there's clear trending in those assets. Clear winners are commodity-related securities. Indeed, commodities have gone up a lot over the last year or so, and trend followers have benefited by being long commodities by and large. And clear losers are there as well in terms of government bond securities. As inflation goes up, yields uh, go up and bond prices go down. So that downward trend in, uh, in bond prices is something trend followers benefited from as well. And also historically, if you look at uh, rising inflationary time periods, it's exactly those two asset classes, commodities and bonds, where trend following has been most profitable at, the, at those times. What about equities this year? Equities um, have a slightly more complicated relationship with inflation in the sense that equities also don't like inflation to be too low, too low as in almost deflationary. So when inflation goes from a very low level to a more moderate level, equities uh, by and large uh, welcome that and benefit from that in terms of price rises. But then if inflation goes through uh, a uh, more uncomfortable level of perhaps between 2 and 5%, that's when equity markets start worrying about inflation as well. And only at that stage you can see equities historically having sold off uh, um, again, the more recent time period has been fairly similar in that regard. Equity markets held up reasonably well in, uh, during, uh, during last year, 2021, and only now this year, 2022, they've really started to, to sell off, uh, particularly in the first half of the year. Um, so equities have a slightly more non-linear relationship with inflation, which makes it slightly harder for, uh, for trend followers to, to benefit from. Yeah, I guess that's kind of interesting. As you describe the returns from trend following, I think some people think, oh, it's probably just doing bonds and equities. But this year really is a multi-asset story, and maybe it's bifurcated in two pieces. There's correcting the things that I own, potentially bonds, and then diversifying into the other asset classes. So you've mentioned commodities a bit, bonds. Without giving percentages of where you think trend followers made money, you know, how important do you think the diversification benefits are, commodities and FX, where it's hard for people to make choices? Like, I'm not going to wake up tomorrow and decide to be long some, some currency cross. And how much is kind of the corrective nature of what's wrong with our portfolios? 
it's an interesting question. So I guess the corrective nature is that if, if an asset you would normally want to be long, like equities or bonds, if that goes down, there's almost like a stop loss uh, nature to, to a trend system. It basically goes in the opposite direction of what you're normally holding long and therefore limiting your losses on it. Um, but really trend following gets its, gets a lot of its uh, performance from just being applied to a wide range of assets, many you wouldn't be holding normally in a in a portfolio, including uh, currency crosses and, and commodities. And that's, that's a major part of the performance historically. Um, this time around, really short bonds and, uh, and long commodities has been a big part of it. Um, but there have been other knock-on effects of this inflationary time period as well. For example, the the US Federal Reserve has started responding to the inflation a bit before other central banks, in particular the ECB, has been lagging behind quite a bit. And that's been really supportive for the US dollar uh, in a very consistent way. So also trend following the US dollar versus a host of other currencies has been uh, a profitable trend to, to exploit. So the next thing people are thinking this year has been inflationary, trend has done well. So don't know if inflation has peaked. We'll get data throughout the year. Um, we get, you know, Even the Fed has suspended forward guidance completely, so they're not even trying to predict anything anymore. But given the big run, should I just take profits now? I've got my inflation bet done, so I can just move on to something else? So the, the nice feature about trend is that it, it's self-correcting. Um, so if, if the environment changes from inflationary to dis, uh, disinflationary, trend systems will naturally turn around. Not uh, immediately, they will need some confirmation from price moves, but ultimately they will uh, turn around. And we've seen some of that happening already uh, at, uh, at the start of the, the second half of this year. Um, so um, it's, it's very hard to, to time trend strategies. Uh, I wouldn't advocate that. Um, the, the, the more sensible approach, I think, is to, to, to hold on to your trend exposure and let it position itself in the in the way it, it wants to position itself and can be a very different environment yet again uh, in some months. To give you another example for that, uh, it, it looked like plane sailing uh, in January, early February 2020. Um, there were some rumors about uh, a new virus or uh, going around, uh, but really all of a sudden uh, the, the COVID uh, pandemic uh, 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 bursts and and big trends arose again. So it's it's very hard to predict when those type of events will happen, and it's better to to have trend uh, um, strategies employed and let them uh, do the timing in terms of the trend signals picking up on on any market moving in a in a certain way. So that's a good segue into a different paper of yours, um, which is just as applicable today uh, as the inflationary paper, and that's the best strategies for the worst crises. So you've kind of alluded to it before, but let's talk a little bit about crisis alpha and trend and how it will work during crises, where the returns come from, that sort of thing. Yeah. So um, before I mentioned that trend following strategies tend to benefit from big macroeconomic shocks and a very uncertain environment and equity sell-offs often happen exactly during those uh, uh, or in response to big macroeconomic shocks so trend following strategies have tended to do well exactly during equity sell-off time periods the global financial crisis was an example uh, the tech bubble bursting was an example as well as uh, 
for faster trend strategies, the, the, the COVID-induced uh, sell-off. So trend strategies tend to benefit from weakness in equity markets because that's the type of micro backdrop that, that helps uh, for a trend strategy. Um, but interestingly, it isn't so much trend following equities themselves that perform the best in those environments, but it's trend following all kinds of other securities that uh, may show a big trend uh, during, during the equity sell-off. It could be that, uh, that uh, bonds are benefiting from a flight to safety move and being long bonds is a very profitable trend during the equity sell-off. The US dollar may show a big move. Uh, oil may, uh, may be impacted a lot uh, during the equity sell-off time period. And it's really more trend following those other securities that historically has, uh, has generated uh, most of the return during the equity sell-off period. So you've written two papers in terms of crises, inflationary times and the worst crises, deflationary shocks. I don't imagine you're, you're going to do a paper called the best strategies for ordinary times. But it does raise the question, which you kind of mentioned you shouldn't time trend. But what does it do kind of in between these, these environments? Trend following strategies, if they're, uh, they're particularly good during more distressed times. Uh, by implication, they're less good during more normal times when prices move in more range-bound fashion. Um, there still can be trends in more particular esoteric markets, and it really helps to have a broad range of markets for which you follow the trends, and you just zoom into those markets where, where trends are to be, to be captured. Uh, but all in all, it's, it's a less favorable environment if markets are calm and equity markets are uh, calmly rising. I would argue that that's also a time period when maybe there's less uh, need for a diversifying strategy to, to pay off big time because you, your normal investment portfolio, say long stocks, is already providing you the, uh, the, the good returns. Um, I would not take this comment uh, further in that you don't need to invest in trend strategies while markets are calm because of the point we discussed, markets may turn less calm in a very sudden way and you'll, uh, you can easily be too late if you don't have your more defensive strategies like a trend uh, strategy in, in place already. Yeah, I think we've seen returns in some kind of random periods where they're just long sustained moves and FX don't seem to impact the market for one reason or another. I think we had that in 2006, 7, 2014, those sorts of things. So I do think it's interesting that there's just enough. You know, I'm an options guy. I'm used to tail hedging for people. So I'm a put with negative carry. And in many ways, what you're talking about with trend is you're you know, a put for crises, but with some kind of positive return over time, which is, you know, as we talked about in a recent conference, <laughs> a sharp distinction between you know, tail hedging and diversifying strategies. And so I guess that's a good segue to a presentation we gave together in a conference in London and, and then subsequently in New York. We talked a bit about convexity and how options have convexity and how trend develops convexity. Maybe you can, without walking us through the entire 45-minute presentation, give us just a, a sample of what, what that talk was about. Yep. So it's about um, investments with a convex payoff, meaning that if, say, the equity market shows a very big negative or a very big positive return, that that's relatively good for that investment, while it doesn't uh, perform as well when there's more modest moves. Um, so investing in a at-the-money put plus call or straddle option position 
is an example of uh, of an investment with a with such a convex payoff. It it benefits from a big move away from from the current price. Um, but the the challenge with options, as as we as we both know, is that you pay an option premium, and on average, you may not earn back that uh, that premium. Options can be expensive on average over time. Um, trend following strategies share some characteristics with say a long straddle position in that it does well when there's big moves because often those moves are uh, achieved in some trending type way big trend up or big trend down means ultimately it's a big move in either direction so trend strategies share that same convexity pattern that they benefit from big moves in the equity market in other markets and may do less well in uh, in terms of um, smaller moves in uh, in those markets um, but the point you were alluding to is that on average over time trend strategies have tended to pay off positively uh, while as options have been expensive to hold on a on a continuous basis so trend is not as guaranteed to be positively convex as a, a as a straddle position uh, but on the on the positive side it's uh, the long run return historically has been better than that of, uh, of just holding straddle option positions. And I guess that kind of construction of position and trend accounts a lot for the crisis alpha and the alpha we see during inflationary times, where maybe you didn't get it the first day, but then as the, the larger trend develops, you've picked that up in a similar way to options, but without the premium. Is that about right? I, I would say that's about right. You, you can try to draw the parallel between trend strategies and option investments in a, in a more precise way. and you can try to delta replicate an option, which means uh, in case of a straddle position, you're you're buying more of the underlying if prices go up and you're selling the underlying if prices go down. That's exactly what a trend following strategy does as well. But we also know that delta replication of options goes wrong if there's a big gap move. That is kind of the weakness of that method. And that's also the Achilles heel of a, of a trend strategy. It needs a somewhat gradual and sustained trend. And when there's gap moves, it's it's less suitable for, for a trend strategy. Okay, well, great. This has been a, a really enjoyable conversation. Um, thank you for joining us, Otto. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We've linked Otto's papers in the episode show notes. You can find them on the Man Institute. And on our next episode, we'll be talking to Juliana Bordigoni about trend following in emerging and alternative markets. So we'll look forward to seeing you then. Thanks again, Otto. Thanks, Peter.